Well, this week is our country's birthday, and man, is she getting old. 243 years old, I think, if my math's right. She's at the point now where she's considering removing her actual birth year from her Facebook account because she doesn't want to know people to know how old she is, right? Now, in all seriousness, uh, I'm grateful for this country. I'm grateful for the freedom that we enjoy here. I'm grateful to have been born here and to live here. When I consider the issues that other human beings around the world face, the oppression, the lack of access to things that are necessary for health and survival, water, medicine, jobs, the lack of freedom that other believers around the world have to to speak of and to commend the gospel to others, it makes me grateful for what we have here in the United States of America. And as the people of God, we should express gratitude for that. We should express our gratitude for what we have found and what we experience here in the United States of America. To quote the great theologian Lee Greenwood, we should be proud to be Americans. Because in many ways, the United States has provided for us as the church exactly what Paul instructed us to pray for when it comes to our governments in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You may remember this when we covered it a few weeks ago. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first four verses speak of Paul's urging to pray and not just pray for all people, but people in, in leadership, for governments, for kings, verse 2, and all who are in high positions in order that we at the church may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He said that as the church, we are to pray for our political leaders, kings and those who hold high positions within our governments, that they would create environments, they would lead their governments in such a way that it would allow us as the people of God to live peaceful and quiet lives, to live lives that were godly and dignified in every way. The prayer that we are to pray as the people of God is that our governments would allow us to create an environment within which we can live gospel-commending lives to ensure peace so that we can be about the business of the Prince of Peace, to ensure freedom so that we can tell others of the true freedom that is only found in Christ. Why? Because as we continue, God desires that all people be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God for us to pray in this way so that our country creates an environment through which the people around us can come to know the truth of Jesus and what He has done for them on the cross. And the government of the United States has largely done this. It has largely created this kind of environment. You think about it. In the United States... We have experienced unprecedented freedom. In the United States, we have experienced unprecedented prosperity. In the United States, we have experienced unprecedented peace. As as Christians in the United States, we have been given room to worship, to study, to learn, to reason together about the Bible, to devote ourselves to the mission of God's kingdom because we have not had to largely worry about war, at least not war coming into our homes. 
We have not had to worry about invading kingdoms or oppressive governments suppressing our obedience to Christ. Now, I say all of this readily admitting that not everyone who lives in this country has experienced all of these unprecedented things in the same way. We can all agree in that, right? Even to say that our, our country is imperfect, but seeking to become a more perfect union. That's something that we should be able to say and express. But it is also true that when compared to other countries around the world and compared to the history of governments in the world, what we have experienced in the United States is special. Something significant. So I'm grateful to live in the United States of America. But I also want to caution us as the church, as we enjoy and give thanks to God for the blessings that we enjoy, we need to be careful. We need to be on guard as God's people, guarding our hearts and guarding our minds to not assign worship or thanksgiving to America that is only rightly directed to God. We have to hold this balance to make sure that, that we acknowledge and we give thanks and we recognize the unique freedom and the unique prosperity that we have experienced here in the United States of America. But we need to be sure that we direct our gratitude for the things that we experience in the United States to the right place. While the blessings that we have experienced as a country are many, and we should celebrate them, sometimes we can forget where those blessings actually come from. Sometimes, as God's people, we can begin to think that America is responsible for the blessings that can only truly come from God. And we allow America then, in receiving glory and honor that is only due to God, to become an idol in our hearts. Even as a church, we can allow a government to become an idol in our hearts. And that affects the way that we pray. It affects the way that we consider the government. And we consider the leaders of our government when we pray. So that if a president shows up on a Sunday morning to a church to be prayed for. Some are overly excited for the opportunity to have him among them. And some are overly offended because of what he represents. Where do we find the balance to be able to think rightly about our country and her leaders so that when we pray and how we pray, it is God-honoring? When we think about our country, and when we celebrate the, the freedom and the experience that we have experienced here in the United States of America, that it is God-honoring. That's what I want us to do this morning. Because of the week that's before us, and because of our time in 1 Timothy chapter 2 challenging us to pray for our country and for its leaders in a God-honoring way, I want us to, to allow the Scripture to inform us about the way that we should think about America so that in thinking in a gospel-centered, God-honoring way about America, our prayers about America and our prayers about her leaders can be right in God-honoring themselves. And to do this, I want us to turn to another book that Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians. 
we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to wrestle with how we can think about our country in a way that honors the Lord. Here's our question that I want us to wrestle with. How do we need to think about America in a way that honors the Lord when we pray for America? Because here's my conviction. If our gratitude is properly directed and our hope is properly situated, then our prayers for America and our prayers for the leaders of America and our prayers for other countries, by the way, and our prayers for the other country's leaders will be God-honoring. Our gratitude and our hope have to be placed in the right place for us to consider America and her leaders and the other countries around us in a God-honoring way. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is teaching the Thessalonian church about eschatology, about some end times events. He's teaching them about the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. And he was likely unable to do that in person because as we see in Acts chapter 17, he was run out of Thessalonica for some of the very things that he was teaching. And his teaching on the day of the Lord specifically addresses some potentially unhealthy and sinful views of Rome that were present in Thessalonica and could have possibly been integrating into the church in Thessalonica. It had the potential, these these thoughts about Rome, to affect the church, her purity, and its mission. So let's look at what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Here's what the Word of God says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying... There is peace and security. Notice that in quotes. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as, a la- as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you who are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. You are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, talking about death and life there, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In our text, Paul speaks of two kinds of people. Those in the dark and those who are in the light. Or describing them another way, those who are asleep are those who are awake. And these two kinds of people will have two very different reactions to the return of Jesus Christ. So let's consider each of the reactions that Paul outlines here separately. First, there will be people in the dark, we see them in verses 3 and 7, who will be surprised by the return of Christ. People who are asleep to the reality of Jesus, asleep to the reality of the the gospel, who have not been awakened by the light of Christ, 
And they will inevitably be surprised to find Jesus return and then begin to judge them for how they lived on this earth. They are blind to the reality of the teaching of the gospel, of their brokenness, of their sinfulness, of their need for a Savior, and they are blind to the fact that they will ultimately be judged for their sinfulness. They have a false sense of peace and security. They think they are safe when they are in eternally in, in risk of eternal danger. Paul says these people who are asleep have a misplaced hope. A misplaced hope. Their hope is entirely earthly minded. There's nothing heavenly about their hope. And as a result, they are in danger. And Paul says their earthly hope, uh, their confidence in their earthly hope is tied to a misplaced confidence in Rome and the government of Rome and the peace and security that Rome had been providing to them. We see this in verse 3. There's a, a quote, quotation here. People are going to be saying there's peace and security. Peace and security. Now this is not just some random phrase that Paul pulled out of the air under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a common phrase among the Roman government promoting what it was that Rome had established for the people. Under Rome, the people who, who lived in this time when Paul was writing the book of Thessalonians had experienced unprecedented peace and prosperity. Unprecedented peace and prosperity like the world had not seen. And the Roman government, in order to remind the people of where the peace and security that provided the prosperity came from, made sure that this slogan was everywhere. That it was printed on coins. That it was printed on t-shirts, right? That it was in the homes of the people around to remind you that although you may come from different cultures, your ultimate devotion, your ultimate worship should be driven to Rome. Pax et securitas was a phrase meant to inspire love and worship for Rome itself, and specifically the emperor at this time, whose name was Claudius. And if you think about it, and in part, they were right. In the sense that no one, no government in the history of the world had provided the peace and prosperity that had been, ex that had been experienced under Roman rule at this time. The Pax Romana was unparalleled in the history of the world. Until this point, if you know anything about world history, we were pretty violent, right? I mean, it was crazy the amount of violence that was present upon the earth. And, and every day, you have to imagine people woke up thinking things like this. Who's going to invade us today? Who's going to be ruling over us when we go to sleep tonight because it could change in the blink of an eye? How much will these new rulers tax us or if we have to go to war, how much will they increase our tax so that now we live in greater poverty? Will they make me leave my family and go to war to places I've never seen for decades in order to preserve and protect the new ruler and emperor? The history of the world at this point was described by tribes warring with other tribes, kingdoms seeking to conquer other kingdoms. And Thessalonica was no exception because of their unique place as a port, they were constantly being fought over. 
because everyone wanted access to the land and the water. They never could enjoy life. They were in constant fear of being overcome. But Rome had brought stability. Rome had brought peace and an accompanying prosperity that was unmatched. And by the way, this was in accordance with God's design. This is the whole point of government. Governments are not accidents. Governments are instituted by God to protect their people, promote good behavior, and preserve peace. Governments provide this over and against anarchy. We see this established by Paul in Romans chapter 13 when he talks about the the role of government. Verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Really? Taxes are in the Bible? Yes. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And this is an ideal description of what government is supposed to be. And of course, it can be flawed, broken, and God will remove those people who do not honor Him in the way that they're supposed to. He will take care of that ultimately or immediately. But in its ideal function, government is supposed to provide this kind of peace and prosperity. And in a way, Rome was being used by God to create an environment in which people, and specifically his newly formed people, could flourish for the sake of the gospel. Think about this. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Rome was uniquely blessed, was uniquely called out by God to provide just the right environment for Jesus to enter into the world, to do his work upon the world, to die, to be raised again, so that the work of God through Jesus could be sent to the ends of the earth. Rome was a government, an institution under the sovereign hand of God that allowed him to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Now, Rome was not perfect in the way that they upheld God's established order. Even as we acknowledge that God used Rome to bless his people and to bless the world through the proclamation of the gospel, we also have to acknowledge that they were persecuting believers. They were persecuting Christians. Even as we see that Rome was established by God, we have to acknowledge the tension that Rome itself was not always good to the Son of God or the people of God. Why? Because it was led by imperfect people who mistook the blessing and the sovereign goodness of God and what only He could provide as actions that they had undertaken in and of themselves. 
They mistook themselves to be the cause of the blessing that God was pouring out upon the earth at that time for his redemptive purposes. And as a result, an inevitable conflict arose between the the government that was declaring its leader to be a sovereign, to be a divine, that was making sure that all the people under its rule gave credit and ultimate credit only to Rome for peace and security, and a God who says, I am alone worthy of that kind of worship. An inevitable clash had to come forward because the peace and prosperity that Rome was taking credit for was not because of Rome, but because of God. And to have someone come into a town overseen by Rome and say, your ultimate loyalty should not be to Claudius. Your ultimate source of peace and security is not Rome. The greatest king is not the man who sits on the throne of Rome. The greatest king is King Jesus. That was a threat to the core of the Roman Empire. Rome never recognized that his authority and success came from God, and as a result, they began to deify themselves, creating a necessary point of contention with the claims of Christ. But even within that tension, even within that perfect government, the church grew and the gospel went forward. But we still see this tension in Thessalonica that began to infiltrate the church. Is Rome worthy of the kind of worship that God is worthy of? Is, he, is Rome responsible for all of this peace? Is Rome responsible for all of this prosperity? And this tension began to, to, to rise in Thessalonica to where it began to compete with the gospel. And the church itself was beginning to experience this tension. Because if we don't give credit to Rome, if we begin to say that King Jesus is truly the only king worthy of our worship, we could start to lose some of this peace and this prosperity that we have enjoyed under Rome. Acts 17, we see Paul's ministry specifically affected by this mentality. As the leaders in Thessalonica and some of the Jewish people in Thessalonica hear Paul pushing forth this controversial message of Jesus and saying, Paul, you have no place here. What you're doing right now, the message that you are speaking is threatening our standing before Rome, which means it's threatening our pocketbooks, and you got to leave. And in the experience of Paul being sent out, some among the church in Thessalonica had to be thinking, if we remain strong in our commitment to the worship of Christ alone, and we reject Rome's description of where peace and security and prosperity actually come from, we could be in danger. We could lose what Rome has provided for us. We could lose the prosperity that we have enjoyed. So what do we do? What do we do? Paul now directly confronts this thinking that is affecting Thessalonica and potentially affecting the church, saying, you place your hope in its proper place. You're worried about losing peace and security that only Rome can provide. Well, let me tell you, there's coming a day when a king will return And there's no government on this earth that will be able to withstand the judgment and the wrath that he will bring. There's no government on this earth 
that will provide peace and security in the wake of the coming wrath of God. The only true place to find peace and security is under the king who will return. Don't look to Rome. It's not your source ultimately. God is. Rome is a product of God's sovereign design, his redemptive work, and what God has given, he can take away. Rome will not last, but there is a kingdom who will last. There is a king who will reign forever. So when forced to contemplate losing something temporary with losing something eternal, there's no choice. You choose the eternal. And you can do that because you're awake. You're in the light. You know the promises of God. And this leads us to our second people, right? There are those who will be surprised by the return of Christ because they're asleep, they're in the dark. But there are those who are awake, who put their hope in Christ. Paul says, church, you know where to properly situate your hope. You know the reality of Jesus. You know what he has done. You know the power that he has shown. And you know the promise that he is coming again. You should not be surprised that there are kingdoms and powers in this world competing for your affections. But you have to be diligent to be sure that you don't let your heart be stirred away from Jesus toward an earthly government that cannot deliver ultimately on what it is promising you. Don't worship a man. Don't worship men. Don't worship institutions. You worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And guard your heart so that you don't fall back asleep. What a sad reality is it that Paul is having to write this to the Thessalonian church to remind them there are people who are asleep, who are in the dark, and if you're not on guard, you can fall back asleep into the things that they think. You can, you can be moved back to a place of false security as you were before you knew Jesus. So he says to them, you have to stay on guard to make sure that you remain awake, diligent to place your hope in the proper place. So how do we do that? He gives them three encouragements to remain awake. The second people who are awake to the gospel. Firstly, he says, verse 6, stay awake. Commit to being awake. Commit to challenging yourself to make sure that your eyes are only focused on Jesus. You are children of light, of the day, not of the night, not of darkness, verse 5. So then let us not sleep as others do. It's possible for you to go back to sleep, to be lulled into a false sense of peace and security by the, the peace and security that you have enjoyed under a government, but you have to remain awake to the things of God. Do not get too comfortable and fall asleep on your belief, taking comfort in the wrong place. Do you know that peace, success, and leisure can distract us? Isn't that a dangerous thing of a people who value peace, success, and leisure? (laughs) Right? Isn't Isn't it kind of a top value in America today, leisure? And peace, comfort, and leisure can be distracting to us. We can become consumed with experiencing peace, comfort, and leisure in this life. Comfort and the experience of comfort can lead us to resist getting uncomfortable. But do you know that Christianity often calls us to be uncomfortable? 
Why? Because God is in the habit of reminding us that our hope is not properly for this world. That we should not long for the things of this world. And if we never experience any tension here, if we never experience any discomfort here, we can begin to think that we belong here, that this world is our home, that we were created for this world alone instead of created for another. It is important for us to remember that we have a greater future, a greater hope than what we can experience in this world alone. And comfort, security, and peace can be a distraction to that. What a sad reality. Jordan and I are in the beginning stages of looking for a different couch. And it's, it's a really sad reality because we love our couch. It is just the right, it's so comfortable, guys. It is so comfortable. You just like sit in it and it envelops you. You know, you've been to my house. It's really great. And, uh, but it's over the years begin to wear. We see some threading coming undone. We have dogs that make it their place of living all the time. And so after eight years of dogs being on it, it's, you know, it's experienced some, some decay. And underneath the, the fabric's coming down. There's some, some issues with some of the wood. It's time. But the problem is, when we compare the couch to every other couch that we look at, everything comes up short. Everything comes up. The, the fabric is too itchy. We can't have leather because we have dogs and they'll scratch. We sit on it. It doesn't envelop us. I can't imagine resting or sleeping on it as if we could with two kids. Right? That comfort describes how I think about every other comfort when it comes to a couch. And the danger is, as the church, that we can get so comfortable in America that we forget there's a greater comfort. There's a greater source of joy. There is a greater source of hope and peace. Because when you sit in something for too long and you enjoy it for too long, you can fall asleep in it. And Paul says you got to stay awake. you got to remain vigilant to remember that this Home is not your home. You are a stranger. You are an exile. You are a sojourner. You were made for another place, another land. Christianity needs, we need to be a little bit uncomfortable at times, friends, to remain awake. This world is not our own. So he says, stay awake. Secondly, be sober-minded. Don't fall asleep and also be sober-minded. Verse 6, keep everything in gospel perspective. I I'm really, really challenged by this New Testament idea of being sober-minded. We'll talk more about it in a couple of weeks when we talk about elders. Sober-minded. That we're not tossed to and fro, but that our minds, our thinking, our decisions are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is do not get drunk on the promises of Rome. Do not get drunk on what... Rome is telling you about itself. It is in its interest to promote itself. You get drunk rather on the promises of God. You indulge in the promises of God and what He has said so that your hope is properly directed. You cling to His salvation. Verse 8. You cling to the good news to protect your mind. This is an act that we have to be active in. Right? Look at verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. What does the breastplate cover? 
your heart, right? And for a helmet, the hope of salvation, what does the helmet cover? Your head, your brain, your mind. So we have to do the work as Christians to protect our hearts and protect our minds against becoming too enamored with this world. Too enamored with the comforts of this world. Too enamored with the peace and security that we find in this world. That we're constantly being reminded of where our hope is truly placed. Where our our love should be truly directed. That our faith is not in in a government established by God, but God Himself. And finally, Paul says, stay awake, be sober-minded, set your hope on a coming king. Not on a political leader, not an earthly political leader, not on a Caesar, but on the king who is to come. Verse 9, salvation comes only through Jesus, who died for us, verse 10, so that whether we are awake in this life or asleep in death, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage each other and build each other up just as you are doing. These convictions should be encouragements to us to think rightly about this world, to think rightly about the institutions of this world, so that whenever we think about our government, whenever we pray for our government, When we think about our leaders, whenever we pray for our leaders, our hope is not overly placed in something established by God, but our sovereign God himself who gave it to us. And when we pray for our country with this kind of view in mind, we can pray with balance, regardless of who's in office, regardless of what party's in power, because our hope is not solely placed in this world. Our hope rests in King Jesus. So how does Paul teaching here encourage us, specifically in regards to the way that we pray? Think about our government and the way that we should pray for our government, the way that we should express our gratitude as a people, even corporately, right? How does this this passage challenge us as a people to express rightly our gratitude for the blessings that we've experienced in America but also at the same time, not venturing into idolatry. I've got three encouragements for us as a result of what we're learning in Paul's teaching. 1 Timothy and 1 Thessalonians. Firstly, we are to be grateful for the work of God through our government. We are to be grateful for the work of God through our government. There's a lot of things to be grateful for in our country, even with all its imperfections, right? Right? Even with all its imperfections, there's a lot of things that we have to be grateful for. A lot of freedoms that are not experienced around the world. A lot of prosperity that's not experienced around the world. We should be grateful to God for those things. But we have to be careful that we're being grateful to God. Right? Oftentimes, I think we, we enamor America and we give thanks to America without taking that next step up to the one who established America. Right? We're grateful for the freedom that we experience in America. And we say that. But in our minds and our hearts, do we take the next step up in that gratitude to be sure that we assign our worship and thanksgiving ultimately to God who designed it? That our worship and our gratitude doesn't stop at the door of America. 
but it moves on to the author of true freedom, all freedom, God himself. We pray to God and we give thanks to him directly for what he has done through the United States. When we compare our situation to others around the world, we should rightly rejoice, but we should rejoice in how it provides us with an opportunity as God's people to be faithful to the commission that he has called us to. That it enables us to live lives like we see here in 1 Timothy 2, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified in every way. That we're grateful for the country we live in because of how it allows us to be ultimately faithful as God's people. So we're grateful. And we express that gratitude. We express thankfulness to God for the land and country we live in. Secondly, we must also be diligent to not look to America for what only God can give to us. And here's where we need to ask the Holy Spirit to check our hearts for misplaced hope and for misplaced worship. All right? And we can do this with anything, not just governments, not just America. This can be true of any government around the world. It can be true of a lot of other things too. Any place that we give ultimate any place where we place our ultimate hope in is not God himself. True peace and security can only be found in God. That's Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 3. There are five. There are people who think that peace and security comes directly from Rome, and Paul says they're wrong. It comes from God. And there will come a day where Rome will fail. Do you think that anybody in Rome, when Paul was writing Thessalonians, thought that Rome would end. You think anybody did? But guess what? It did. Is the Roman Empire on the face of the earth today? No. No. That empire, that government, did not last. Nations fall. Political leaders fail. Did you know, this is going to be a newsflash, did you know that Political leaders often promise things they don't deliver. I hate to burst your bubble. Do you know that, that politicians will promise you things in order for you to elect them that they will not deliver on? Yeah. They do that. Political leaders fail. And as great as our country is, it is not perfect. But here's my challenge to you today. As we consider the imperfections of our country even as great as it is, as we consider the imperfections of our leaders, even as great as some of them are, they are a reminder to us that our hope is not properly situated in an earthly leader or an earthly kingdom. As with the testimony of all of Scripture, our best is never enough. And every time we experience the shortcomings of our best, it causes us to long for something better. And so as we see the imperfections of our government on display in the next year and a half, as we argue with each other about what's best for the future of our country, as we see the imperfections of other countries around the world oppressing their people, it should cause us to long for a greater kingdom, a greater land where all of this stuff will cease. And as we see leaders 
over and over again fail in their ability to unite our country, unite the people of the world, to provide pure and lasting peace that should drive in our hearts a desire for a greater king who is able to do what no human being in their own power can do. Every time we experience the imperfection of this world and we see that it cannot offer the peace and security that Jesus Christ alone can provide that should cause us in our hearts to begin to long for him to return and place our hope in him alone. Diligent to look to God for what only he can bring. Now, dear, does that mean that we just disregard America, that we, dis- we disregard government? Of course not. We should be engaged with our government. It just means that we should be responsible and sober-minded about our engagement. It doesn't mean that we give up on earthly government. It's established by God for good things. And we have a unique opportunity here in the United States to influence the way that our government operates and functions. So we should pray for godly leaders. We should pray for favor with our government. We should pray for godly men and women to rise up to serve in our governments. We should pray for peace and prosperity that allow us to be about gospel work. But we should not be irreparably devastated when we see a political leader or even a government fail and its ability to provide what only God can truly provide. And finally, we're grateful to God for the work of government. We're grateful, uh, we're diligent to not look to America that only God can give to us. And finally, we make explicitly clear where our ultimate loyalty lies. This is so important for us today in our political climate. That as we celebrate America and as we pray for America, that we don't pray down party lines, right? Isn't it crazy sometimes how we'll pray, God bless President Trump, God condemn President Obama, right? And the only reason that we're praying that way is because they inhabit a political party. Our prayer should be the same, regardless of who is in office. They would promote a culture that allows us to be able to be faithful to the work of God. We've got to be clear where our ultimate loyalty lies. Hear me. Our loyalty as the church does not belong to a president. Our, our commitment, our loyalty does not belong to a political ideology. Our commitment and loyalty as the people of God do not even belong to one country. Our commitment and loyalty as the people of God belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if anybody ever has a question as to where our ultimate loyalty lies, we have failed as the church. Hear me. I want to reach all kinds of people for the, for the glory of God. We as the church, we should long to reach all kinds of people with the message of Jesus Christ. That means Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and even Green Party people. Right? All of them. All of them need the gospel, and all of them should be welcome in our church. We want the gospel to be our, our priority. And listen, if someone is uncomfortable in our church, let us be sure they're uncomfortable because of the conviction of the Spirit of God and not because of our political ideologies. We've got to fight for that, right? Here's, here's the question, church. First Baptist Church of Irving. What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for your political leanings? Or do you want to be known for your devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
I want the latter. We want the latter. It doesn't mean that politics don't matter. It doesn't mean that our government doesn't matter. It just means that it matters less than our ultimate devotion to Jesus. And wherever we express our gratitude to God for what he has done to us in this country, whenever we pray for our country, whenever we pray for our leaders, let's be sure that it is crystal clear who we trust most and where our faith is properly placed. Now, why is this so important for us to talk about? Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but our country is really divided. And it seems like we're pushing further and further away from each other toward opposite ends of a political spectrum. And over the next year and a half, that political divide is going to be evidenced more and more. And the danger is those political ideologies and the division that has resulted in our culture could begin to infiltrate our church. It already is a little bit, to be honest with you. And we have to be careful that when we think about our country, when we speak about our country, when we talk about politics, when we pray for our leaders, that we are always doing so through a gospel lens that makes our ultimate devotion crystal clear. Because in the gospel of Jesus, what used to divide us now has been broken down. In this room, we have people who speak different languages, who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, who have grown up in different cultures, who have different perspectives on America. But praise be to God that those things no longer separate us because we have a greater loyalty in King Jesus. And we are united in our common commitment to him. And let us be sure, let us be sure that we are constantly striving to make that loyalty clear. doesn't mean that we don't celebrate on a day like today. doesn't mean that we don't give thanks to God for what he has done in America. But it does mean that we are clear that our ultimate loyalty and our ultimate trust and our ultimate hope is in Jesus. Wherever you are, you bow your head. Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond today. First question I have to ask is this, is your ultimate hope in Jesus? Is your ultimate hope in Jesus? Have you ever given your life to him? The Bible says if you confess your mouth with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. This hope that we've been talking about today can be yours. You can have true peace and security, eternal peace and security, eternal riches in Jesus today. Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about that. For the rest of us, you, you have given your life to Jesus. You have placed your ultimate hope in him. Is that hope clearly present in every avenue of your life? In your Sunday school class, would people be offended by your political ideology more than your commitment to the gospel? On your Facebook page, would you lose 
the ability to speak to someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what you have posted on there. May it be crystal clear where our gratitude is for what we experience in this country and may no one ever question the devotion that we have to Jesus. Father, help us. Find us faithful. Help us to repent if needed. But firm up our hope, Father, in your kingdom, not our own. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.